right. Well, listen, I'm glad you're here. Big hello to everybody who's watching online. Thank you guys for uh, taking the time to make tonight a part of your uh, of your evening. Thank you, TJ. Finest chair in the place. Thank you. All right, First John. If you got your Bibles, you guys turn there. We're going to spend the next five weeks in First John, and then we're going to uh, go from there. But uh, I'm looking forward to walking through this letter, John. Was the last of the uh, was the last of the the apostles. The rest of them, by the time John had written this epistle, probably somewhere around 90 A.D., uh, the rest of them were already gone. They had all been martyred for their faith. Most people believe John was living in Ephesus, where he was still the reigning apostolic authority in those churches in Asia Minor, there by Ephesus, and probably wrote these epistles, First, Second, and Third John, these letters, right after he wrote his gospel. There was a lot going on uh, in those days. I mean, you have to remember. We have to remember that that when these letters were written, there was no Bible, right? They couldn't just grab the NIV version of the Bible and compare what teachers and preachers were saying and compare it to what Scripture said. I mean, we're truly living in blessed times. Amen? I mean, we have God's Word that we can rely on to dispute a false teacher. I mean, there's, there's no excuse for Christians not to know the truth. But back when these letters were written and these churches were planted and, and elders were raised up to, to, to oversee the flock, listen, false teachers appeared. These false teachers would appear in all of these churches and they would begin to teach these doctrines that they had no book to confirm against, right? It isn't as if, as if Paul had gone to Philippi, wrote the book and left it for them. Right? He wrote these, they wrote these letters in response to lots of these false teaching. First John's no different. John wrote these epistles to combat false teaching once again that had come into the church. And the false teaching was primarily based upon this idea called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And here was the teaching. The teaching was that man was the man had a duality and the duality was this, that anything that was matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, matter was evil and everything that was spirit or spiritual was good. And the way that a human being rose above the evil of matter, their physical existence was they had to obtain knowledge. The more knowledge, the more spiritual that everything about flesh Everything about matter was evil, but as long as you pursued knowledge, right, right, which is where Plato played into the idea of Gnosticism, right, that if you could pursue knowledge, then you could attain spirituality. Listen, there's Gnosticism in our church still today. There are people who still believe that the, that the smarter, the better, that the more letters behind your name, the more spiritual. That's certainly not the case. And John wrote these letters, right, these epistles to combat that false teaching. Uh, it reminded me of a story of a couple boys that had gone uh, pecan picking. And they had gotten a couple buckets full of pecans and they were on their way home. And they had stopped by this huge tree 
on their way home that was inside a cemetery. And so they had sat down inside the cemetery and they were going through the pecans in the bucket and they were saying, you know, one of the boys was doing the talking and he was saying one for you and one for me and one for you and one for me. And while they were dividing them up, some of the pecans rolled down the side of the hill into the ditch outside of the cemetery. Well, it happened to be down by the ditch outside of the cemetery, a young man was coming home Right, And as he was coming home, he thought he heard voices coming from the cemetery. And so as he got closer, he realized he was right. He was hearing voices from the cemetery. And it had gotten to the point that it was past, right right at sunset. It was still some light. And as he got closer, he listened and he heard. Sure enough, one voice was saying, one for you and one for me. And one for you and one for me. Coming in from, from inside the cemetery. And he freaked out. He's like, oh my gosh, that's St. Peter and Satan dividing souls in the cemetery. And so he rushed off to find some help. And sure enough, he came across an elderly gentleman who was on his way home. And the elderly gentleman didn't want to be bothered. And, and, the, and the young man's persistence and his fear finally won out. And he brought the elderly gentleman to that same spot. Sure enough, they crouched down, and if you could listen, you could hear the voice. One for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. And the old man looked at the young, guy, the young boy and said, you know what? You were telling the truth. St. Peter and Satan are dividing souls in the cemetery. And so they decided to try to get a better look to see if they could actually get a picture of Satan. And so as they crawled on their hands and knees up the side of the hill to try to peer, they found that they couldn't see anything, but they could hear the boys inside of the cemetery. And the boys inside the cemetery said, one for you, one for me, one for you. That's it. Now let's go get those nuts down by the ditch and we'll be done. Right? You know, a, a good friend of mine is, is in his first, and I've told you about Jason, in his first ministry as a lead pastor. And this week he read a book on spiritual warfare. And we've spent lots of time this week talking about that because it's the first time he's ever written read a book about spiritual warfare the way that this was written. And he was incredibly uh, taken and surprised and overwhelmed by the reality that at times, even as a pastor, he misses. And I think sometimes that we as Christians at times miss the reality that there is a spiritual warfare happening in the world that you and I cannot always see that is profoundly active on a daily basis for your existence and mine, right? We can get so caught up in the mundane, we can get so caught up in the physical that we fail to recognize there is a spiritual enemy. I was reminded tonight in our elders meeting beforehand as we laid hands on and anointed with oil a young man who is clearly in the throes of a spiritual attack from the forces of evil in the heavenly places. We get comfortable at times in our physical existence and forget that reality that's what John addresses in 1 John. It's what John addresses in 2 John, and it's what John addresses in 3 John. He's addressing this spiritual warfare that's basically coming at us in one way, and that is through false doctrine, right? False doctrine is always at the heart of what Satan uses to drive us away from the truth. Because as Jason said a couple weeks ago, as we say, as Jesus said, right, what we believe drives what we do. 
And if Satan can convince us to believe in something different, he can convince us to do something different. Which is why being here, being online, coming to Tuesday or coming on the weekend or being a part of a Bible study, short-term group, whatever it is, right, is so absolutely necessary for your spiritual existence and mine. Because without the truth, we're in some serious trouble. We will be children. Tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine that may sound good to us in the moment. we got to know the truth. So part of the reason why I enjoy preaching on Wednesday is because we get to dig in a little deeper. Because I'm less concerned about time than we have to be on the weekends. And if you were here this weekend, right, and I preached, you realize I'm not that concerned about time anyway. So... Uh, right. It's okay. Right. But we're going to do that tonight and we're going to take some time to walk through this. So first John chapter one, if you've got it, we're going to read those first four verses here. And here's what John says, right? And we're talking about the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Self-proclamation. John says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have held or looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and we testified to it and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen, what we've heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Our fellowship right, is with the Father, and our fellowship was with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So one of, the, one, of my, one of my most enjoyable activities in the world today is eating out. If I could, I would close my kitchen, sell my refrigerator, and I would simply eat out every meal of every day. Who's with me? Thank you, right? It's not that I don't mind cooking. It's not that I don't mind home cooking. But at 58, I want to eat out. And not only do I like to eat out, I like to eat at new places, right? I like to find good places to eat. Listen, when I travel, the number one thing I do when I travel is look for a good place to eat, right? And I love it. Here's a couple that I came across. I wanted to show you these real quick. So this is a picture of a place called Nick's Grill. Anybody know where Nick's Grill's at? You do, right? You ever been there? Oh, it's fantastic, right? Praying for you, right? Nick's Grill, as you can tell, is a really tiny little place. It's located in Oklahoma City. It has a bar, and then it has uh, one, two, three, four, five tables in it, right? It seats about 25 people, okay? It is a dive in the heart of Oklahoma City, just in the middle of a street, you park and you go, right? Was one of the number one, you know, I have a bucket list and my bucket list isn't things to do. My bucket list is places to eat, right? So, and I'm working on it, right? This was on my list. Matter of fact, this place made the top 10. And so I went to Nick's Grill because a buddy of mine lived in Edmond, which was a suburb of Oklahoma City. So this is what it looks like. And here's what the burger looks like, right? There's a picture of, of the burger and the fries. And let me tell you, it was spectacular, right? To this day, the number one hamburger, cheeseburger I've eaten in my entire life was at Nick's Grill in Oklahoma City. It was awesome. The experience was everything that I hoped it would be, right? 
Here was my second favorite place I've been to so far on my bucket list. This is a place called Hodad's in Ocean Beach, which is a suburb of San Diego. Anybody been there? Fantastic, right? One of the... So Ocean Beach is San Diego's version of... um, What's the name of the weird beach in L.A.? Huh? I can't hear you. Speak up. Venice Beach, right? Thank you, right? Ocean Beach is San Diego's version of Venice Beach. It is a weird, eclectic place, right? So I was in town for a conference. I stayed in Ocean Beach because I wanted to go to Hodad's, and I stayed at a little little mom and pop place right there so I could go to Hodad's. And so this place, uh, the guy who, who started this place died young, died of a heart attack. He was one of Guy Fieri's best friends who's on diners, drive-ins and dives. And he found this place and this was it from the outside. Go ahead and show the next picture. This is what it looks like inside. Again, another small dive inside, right? And then here's the picture of the burger that I had. Oh, fantastic, right? Just spectacular, right? It's awesome. I love, I mean, listen, I thought about just doing this for 45 minutes, you know, and just praying and going home, right? Fantastic. And I'll tell you this, and this is the truth. As much as I enjoyed going to these places, and God knows I did, what I loved more was telling other people about them. I love telling people about them and watching them go because here's what happened. It made my joy complete. That's all John says at the beginning of this letter. Listen, I've seen Jesus. I've heard Jesus and I've touched Jesus, right? And I'm going to proclaim to you what I saw, what I heard and what I felt. I'm going to tell you all of it. And here's the reason we're telling you this because it'll make our joy complete. Does that make sense to you? That's John's intent and John's heart. And you know what? I get that. I understand that. So as a, as a guy who's, who's, who's running out his time on earth, and what a time it was. Remember, John's the apostle at the cross. The only one of the 12 that made it was John. And he stood there with Jesus' mother. And remember what Jesus said? Woman, behold your son. Right? And John, behold your mother. And it says from that day forward, Mary moved in with who? John. Can you imagine being the guy that Jesus picked to take care of his mother? And you know the way moms talk about their children. Can you imagine the things she told John about Jesus? Like, what an unbelievable life this man had. And here's what he says. In spite of all of that, in spite of everything we've heard and everything we've seen and everything we've touched and everything we've beheld with our eyes and our hands, he says, our joy won't be complete unless I share it with you. And I love the heart of John. And so what he shares now comes with that idea. This is so good, I can't help but share it with you. All right? There are two points I want to bring out in 1 John chapter 1. Right? Again, we could take, if you've ever been in a Bible study with me, listen, I could take five chapters and study them and make it last six months. Okay? I had no problem with it. So we're going to go at this at a, at a chapter a week, and I'm going to land on some of the high notes. Right? 
Here's the first point of 1 John 1. There is one, everybody say one. There is one foundational truth in this chapter. Everything else John says, everything else John says in this letter will be based on this foundational truth. And it's found in verses 5, verse 5. It says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. One message, just one. And everything that Jesus said summarized in this one message. God is light. Great statement. And in him there is what? No darkness at all. Everything for verse John. One, two, three, four, five. Everything that he writes is based on this one message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the foundational truth we're going to operate from. Listen, I'm, I'm, I, I think I've shared with you that for the first time in 50 plus years, I went and saw a counselor last year. Sometimes I wish I had never done it, Right? But learning about yourself is an interesting process. Anybody agree with that? Because listen, let's be honest. Most of us are, are semi-honest about who we are. And I know that's true because generally when somebody around us is honest with us about who we are, we're generally offended, mad, or hurt. It, true, right? Doesn't go over very well. Because even though we have an idea of who we are, actually hearing it out of somebody else's mouth is like, whoa, 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 right? Can't be true. Learning about yourself is a painful thing, especially learning about our nature, right? I mean, one of the things that I, I've, I've always known theoretically and have come to really embrace it practically is that there is no trauma. There is no trauma like childhood trauma. And there is nothing that creates nature inside of a human being more than a child's trauma that they live with for their entire life, right? When you boil down to who we are as an adult and our issues and our struggles and our fears and our phobias, right? That's why most counselors go back to your childhood and your parents. Why? Because they know something that we all know at our core, that something in us when we were young and undeveloped was formed in our childhood. And so learning about our nature becomes a really potent weapon in how we learn to grow. And we all know that, right? We all know it because we say things like this. That's just who I am, right? Listen, if you're going to love me, you're going to just need to love me for who I am. Anybody ever hear that or say that, right? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, is it? Right? I mean, listen, we've raised kids. We've been in relationships. Loving people the way they are, I think that's a terrible slogan. Right? I love you in spite of who you are, and my efforts are to make you better. Right? Right? That's the way we are. Listen, you start loving your kids for who you they are, whew, you're going to have some really unlovable people. Right? Why do we parent the way we do? Because we're hoping to develop them in something better than the way they are all the time, right? Because if we let all of those things, because listen, I've got some weird stuff. I've got some personality parts that aren't appealing. I think, I don't know, maybe not, you know. You know what I'm saying? We all have those things. 
But nature, right? Nature is something when it comes to human beings, we defend all the time about ourselves, right? I don't, I don't, I don't like being in my apartment and it being dark. I hate it. I grew up in a dark house. I grew up in a house that was kept dark and I hated it. Hated it. So when it's dark in my apartment, bam, lights are on, windows are up. I can't stand it, right? I don't like being cold. I grew up in a house where I was cold all the time. So if it's cold outside in Florida, my heat's on. I want to be in shorts and a t-shirt every day in my apartment and be comfortable, right? I want that because why? That's who I, and you know what? I defend that all the time, right? God has a nature. God has a nature and here's his nature. God is light. Now, listen, I asked my buddy today, what in the world does that mean? How would you describe that to people? Well, here's the thing about God being light that doesn't really have to be described. Every person in here knows the power of light versus dark. Yes or no? Right? I mean, listen, light is an amazing thing, is it not? I mean, just think of all the things that you do during the day and in the light that you could never do in the darkness. Can you imagine trying to eat in pitch black? Can you imagine taking a bath, a shower, getting dressed? Right? I mean, there's millions of things that you and I are capable of doing in the light that if we had to do it in, and I'm not talking dark, I'm talking pitch black. The kind of black that is so black and so dark, it's heavy. Right? Those places exist. And here's what he says. God is light. And here's how light he is. There's zero darkness in him at all. Look around the room. Everybody sort of in the room, those of you online, just give us a second, right? Look around the room and look where there are places that are dark. See them, right? But that's not dark, but that's some dark. God has none of that. Let's read a couple passages. John 8, 12 says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said this, everybody read it with me, everybody online. I am the light of the world, right? I'm the light of the world. How about John 12, John chapter 12, verse 35 says this, Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer, right? I'm the light. I'm only going to be here a little while. Here's the thing I want you to notice about that. God isn't a light. He is light, right? I'm not light, but I have a light. Got the difference? If I walk into a room, I don't bring light with me unless I have a light. God doesn't have to do that because God is light. It's his nature. And that nature is so light, it has zero darkness. Listen to the power of light. Psalm, Psalm 50, 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. He's light. How about this one? First Timothy 5 or 6, 5, 15, or I think, yeah, 15 and 16. Paul writes, some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. I don't think that's the right. I, I gave you the wrong verse. It's, it's chapter 6. My bad. First Timothy chapter 6, verses uh, 15 and 16. Just talk among yourselves. I'll be there with you in a second here. 
This stuff can't happen on the weekend, right? Like this stuff can't happen. I've got to, I've got to do better. Here's what it says in First Timothy chapter six, verses fifteen and sixteen. Paul writes about God being light. It's in my Bible. I promise you. It says this. Which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see, right? You remember when Moses wanted to meet God in person and he was told, you can't see God fully frontal because you'll be consumed. Because God's what? He's light. And he absorbs every bit of darkness. Because there is no darkness in him at all. And then this is my favorite one in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Listen to the power of God being light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was formless. It was empty. And what? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Remember, God is what? And there's no what in him? Darkness. The earth was formless and void and darkness covered, covered it, right? And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, the first thing that we have to have, let there be light, right? It's just a part of who God is. It's not something he has. It's not something that, that he has to possess. It's who he is. God is light. Listen, and here's what that means. Our God has no evil in him, has no darkness. He has no inadequacies. God's knowledge is perfect. He doesn't miss a thing, right? Listen, if there is perfect light and no darkness, God doesn't miss a thing. And he has absolutely no form of impurity in him whatsoever. Why? Because that's the nature of God. And here's here's the crazy part. John said, this is the message we have heard. Not this is one of them, right? But this is the message. So here's, for me, the foundational truth. Everything that God tells us in his word about everything else is built on one foundational principle. The nature of God being light. You may not like it. Listen, you may be watching online and you may be here for the first time. And you may not like the fact that God has a nature that's contrary to yours. All right, you're going to have to work through that. I was raised by a father that had a nature contrary to mine. And you know what? Sometimes he and I didn't get along. Right? I'm married. Been married for 32 years. Guess what? I live with a person who has a nature different than mine. Sometimes it causes a little conflict. Anybody anybody relate to that? Listen, part of what our faith has to do for us is bring us to a place of acceptance of the nature of God. Because John says, this is the message. And everything else is built on this one foundational truth. And that's God is light. And there's no darkness in him at all. And now he's going to give you and I two practical truths based on that. And the entire epistle will be, will be more truths and more truths based on that one message that God is light. And here's the first practical truth that he gives us in verses 6 and 7. And that's this. That first practical truth is that light... Right? Light lives right. Everybody say that with me. Light lives right. One more time. Light lives right. Here's what he says. If we claim to have fellowship with him, 
God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. Leave that right there. Bring that verse back up. How many of you would claim to be in fellowship with God because of you have a relationship? Yes or no? Say amen. Right? Here's what he said. If you claim that, right, and yet you walk in darkness, you're a what? You're a liar. And not only are you a liar, you do not have the what? Truth. Truth is a pretty important thing to have. Would you agree with that? Because what did Jesus said? If you know the truth, the truth will set you what? So if you don't have the truth, you don't have any what? Freedom. So you're still in bondage to your sin. It's a fairly significant point, right? And so here's what he says. If we claim that and yet walk in darkness, we don't have that. And then he says this in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light or he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us of all unrighteousness. So let's talk about this for just a minute, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use marriage, marriage as an example. So if you're not married, this isn't, this isn't a referendum on being single. If you're divorced, this isn't a referendum on being divorced. It's simply a relationship example that I want to use to prove a point. Everybody okay with that? All right. I don't want anybody to be offended, right? All they talk about is marriage. Trust me. We'd like to talk about something else. Okay. Thank you for laughing at that, right? So, have you, those of you that have been married or those of you that are married, and those of you that are considering marriage, listen up, right? If you're married, have you ever been out of fellowship with your partner? Sure, right? There's a difference. There's a difference. You, you confirm this, yes or no. There's a difference between being married having a marriage and always being in fellowship with your partner. Yes or no? Of course. Right? You ever been married and have a really bad day? Didn't talk? Don't want to see the person? Don't want to talk to the person? Go to bed? Good night? That's it? We just get up and do tomorrow? Anybody ever? Anybody in here ever do that? Right? Does that mean you don't have a marriage? Yes or no? No. This means you're out of step, out of fellowship. Let's be clear about this. Paul's not talking about a salvation moment here. He's talking about a fellowship moment. A moment of having things in common. So let's see, let me ask you a question again. And this is for anybody that's been in a relationship. When you're in fellowship with your partner, does it make your marriage or your dating relationship better? Yes or no? Of course. So the goal is to be in fellowship so that we can make those relationships better. And that's God's desire. So here's what he says. If you're in a relationship with me, claiming to be in fellowship with me, you've accepted Jesus, right? You've put your faith in him and you would say, I'm a Christ follower, a Christian. Here's what he says. If you make that claim and yet your life is characterized by walking, practicing, performing darkness, we're not in fellowship and you're a liar. You got that? Because remember, what was the false teaching? The false teaching was that everything that was matter was evil and everything that was spirit was good. So the reality was you only attain spiritual by knowledge, not by watching your P's and Q's. 
You could do whatever you wanted to do in the flesh, because guess what? Matter is all evil. You're never going to change it. You're never going to make it good. So don't worry about your performance. Don't worry about the things that you do. Simply worry about what you know. Boy, wouldn't that be a great way to live the Christian life? I mean, if God's desire was for us to simply be spiritual by what we know, and we could do whatever we wanted in the flesh, sign every Christian up in the world. Right? We'd all want those moments at times. But Paul says, or John says this, that's a lie because God is what? He's light. So here's, listen to these verses. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. So I tell you this, and assist on the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles, unbelievers, people who aren't connected to God through Jesus, in the futility of their thinking, right? They're what? Darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance, right? That's just being uninformed that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They've lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality, right? As to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. The idea is this, that darkness produces certain activities. They're content with it because they don't know any better, right? That's the condition of the Gentile, Paul writes. How about this one? John 8, 12. We'll finish the verse. Jesus spoke to them and to the people and he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, right? If you're online, you're in here and you follow Jesus, say amen. So he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They won't live in the condition of Ephesians 4. Their minds are darkened because of their ignorance of what the truth is. And they'll live these sensual, lust-filled lives doing whatever they want to. He says this in John 12, 35 and 36. Jesus told them, you're going to have the light, me, right? Just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Walk as if the light is with you before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going, right? Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become what? Sons and daughters of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left them behind or left them and hid himself from them. Listen, there's a powerful connection in scripture between living in darkness, performing acts of darkness and having no understanding of the light as opposed to people who claim and are connected to the light and how they should live, right? That's, that's shown in these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, since, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Rather, we've, listen to this, rather as believers we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. He says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, darkened. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they can't see the what? Light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory in the face of Christ. So why did God place the light in us? So others could see 
the light of God. And what's the light of God? It is the glory of the image of Jesus. Listen, darkness produces sensual, selfish, pleasure-seeking acts. Light produces the image and the glory of Jesus. Amen? 2 Corinthians 6.14, just so we're clear. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? And this is the principle. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? That's the Greek word for fellowship, right? What fellowship, same word, koina, koinonia, can light have with darkness? So here's what he says. God's light. It's a foundational truth. It's the message we heard from the beginning. We saw it. We touched it. We, we felt it. We experienced it. And here's what I came away with. One message. God's light. And there's no darkness in it. So here's the practical truth. If you're a Christian, light lives right. Because if we are in the light, as he is in the light, right, then we have choices to make that reflect that light, right? Listen, there are people, anybody here ever worked the midnight shift? Okay. And I know some of you are going to be weird and you're going to go, oh, I didn't have any trouble. For normal people who work midnights, did you have any trouble sleeping during the day? Right? How many of you bought blackout curtains to learn how to sleep during the day? Right? It is a weird thing to work midnights and sleep during the day. Right? It's a, it's a, it's not supposed to. We sleep at night. We rise during the day. But when you work the midnight shift, and you have to sleep during the day so that you can work at night. You know it. Your body knows it. Every system in your body and function knows that's not the right system. It's the same for a Christian. If you're a Christian, if you want fellowship with God, you're in the light. Which means you should live like you're in light and not like you're in dark. Because John says when you say that God and I are simpatico... But your walk reflects darkness. He says, you're a liar and you don't even have the truth. Right? It's like, listen, I don't know if you've heard this and I'm almost embarrassed to say it. But, you know, I've heard married men, right, with other married men in other places, right, traveling together without their spouses. I've heard this happens, Right? And they're out somewhere and all of a sudden a, 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 a beautiful woman will walk by and one of the married men will look at her and someone will say, hey, 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 I thought you were married. And the guy will say, well, just because I'm married doesn't mean I'm dead. Some of you women are like, that happens? Yes, right? Or they'll use the phrase that I'm just window shopping, right? Am I the only person that's ever heard this? Or are you, okay, I was about to get fired, right? And here's, here's what, I'm going to be honest with you. If you hear that from a married guy and you're not the one that said it, your first thought is, ooh, their marriage might be in trouble. Because when you're in a relationship, there are things that are congruent with it and there are things that are not. Make sense? Yes or no? Listen, if you're in a relationship with God, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Sins are forgiven and baptized 
filled with the Spirit, that's salvation. It happens once, it lasts forever. Relationship and fellowship requires this. Light lives right. The reason why so many Christian people struggle on a day-to-day basis is because they don't have any fellowship with God. They love God. They love Jesus. They love church. But when they leave church, right, because here we're not doing most things wrong. We're trying to live right when we come onto the property. But when we go home, we go to our work, we go to our places that we play, all of a sudden living right as light doesn't come as easy. And we spend the majority of our relationship with Jesus out of fellowship. I don't know how long you've been in a relationship when you finally say, I can't be out of fellowship with this person anymore. It's too hard. It's easy to give up on a relationship that you're never in relationship with, right? Wow. Is that serious? Somebody's tricking me, right? Does that make sense to you? You, you've got, listen, Christians have to do better Because all of the blessings of being a Christian come from being in fellowship with God, right? They don't come from coming to church. They don't come from from all of those things. You can do those things. And the reason reason why so many Christian people enjoy going on a mission trip and enjoy going to church camp, enjoy going to church, is because it's one time in their life they're not doing something wrong. And all of a sudden they experience the fullness of relationship with Jesus. They're like, holy cow, church camp is an amazing place. I don't ever want to leave here. Well, of course you don't. Because you're not doing stupid things in the dark. The reason why lots of Christians like coming to church is because it's the one place they're not yelling at each other. They're not cussing. They're not drinking. They're not smoking. They're not lying. They're not cheating. And they're like, oh my gosh, I love worship. It's amazing. It's because you're in fellowship. Does that make sense to you? The reality is you can live that way on a day-to-day basis. It's a foundational truth. I want to read so bad Ephesians 5, but it's too many verses and I got one more point to cover real quick. So please write down this verse and read it. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Please take the time to read it in context of light lives right. It's the most powerful passage to describe what that's like for you. All right? Here's the second practical truth, right? We have a foundational truth. One message. God is what? Light. And how much darkness is in him? Zero. Which means God isn't affected by darkness. isn't tempted by darkness, right? None of his decisions are made because of darkness. Everything God feels and everything God knows and everything that God does is based on what? Light. And here's a practical truth. Light lives right. That's a struggle for Christian people. Because we like to live in the light, but we like to do wrong things. Okay. You've got the freedom in Christ to do that. It simply means you're going to be out of fellowship with God. And the problem with maintaining a relationship with God when you're out of fellowship is really poor. It's why people quit coming to church. It's why people stop participating in it because they realize that being in a relationship with God is too stinking hard when you won't live in fellowship with him Monday through Friday, right? We've got to do better at that. But here's the second practical truth that I want to go through real quick, right? And the second practical truth is this light confesses wrong, right? Everybody say that with me. Light confesses wrong. One more time. Light. Okay. Something's wrong over here. Either my ears broke or you're not speaking. Okay. One more time. Light confesses wrong. Listen, this is powerful. Why I want to take a minute to say it. 
verse 8 through 10 say this. Remember, we've been asked to live as light because light lives what? Right. If we claim to be without what? Sin. We've deceived ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So now there's another way the truth is absent. We've said we have no sin. Here's the key. Bring that verse back up if you don't mind, David. Here's the key. It's in context, right? He's not writing in a new context. It's the same context. And what's the context? The context is this. I'm a Christian. Have a relationship or have salvation through Jesus. Now I want a day-to-day relationship with my father. To do that, I've got to live right. How many of you are excited and love Jesus enough that you want to live right? Yes or no? Yes. Now, how many of you as Christians who are excited to live right, believe you're going to do it perfectly? Right? You're not. And here's why I love this verse, because contextually it tells me John's not a moron. He gets that living right is going to be filled with what? Imperfection. Imperfection. Walking in the light has nothing to do with perfection. Perfection was attained through accepting Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? Learning to live as a Christian is going to have moments when we fail. Which is why he says... If we claim to be without sin. Listen, there's not a Christian in here, not a Christian online that does this perfectly. If you find somebody that acts like that, get away from them. Right? I'm dead serious. Those people, those people are evil. That's a, that, that, that teaching and that belief system is so removed from the truth of the gospel, you need to be away from it. It's arrogance and pride like you can't even imagine. He says, if we've claimed to be in this living as light thing without sin, we've deceived who? Not you, but ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. He says this, but if we what? Confess. That Greek word means, here's all confession means. It means to agree with. Right? It means to agree with. Confession is simply your way of saying to God, I agree that that's wrong. It's not you going, oh, oh man, I figured something out, God. I did something wrong. No, it's you figuring it out and then learning that God thinks that too. And you going, I agree with that. I agree with that. That's all confession is. So he says, if you will confess or agree with me about your sins, look what God does. He's what? And here's why God's faithful. Because how much darkness does he have in him? Because listen, if God wasn't If God was at all affected by darkness, you know what he would do. At times he would look at you and go, I'm so tired of forgiving you. I'm so tired of your stupidity. I'm so tired of that sinful choice. Today I might be influenced by the accuser just not to forgive you. Here's the great thing about God's nature. It's never influenced by evil. Which means he's always going to be faithful. Somebody say amen. So some of you are like, oh, he's got to be so tired of me. No, he's not. His nature doesn't allow it. He is always faithful. And he is faithful and he is just. Meaning this, he will for... Because just simply means this. I already accepted payment for that sin. I can't, I can't exact payment a second time. I've already got it once. So you're, you're, you're beating yourself up and you're, you're, you're keeping yourself in the dark. Like, I can't see people. I'm too embarrassed. I'm too ashamed. You know, I can't show. Get over it. 
Because the reality is God's just. He's not exacting a payment twice. For so many of you, when the evil comes and you make a mistake, you simply cripple yourself because you've deal- you're dealing with guilt and you're dealing with shame and you won't let go. God isn't unjust. He's not going, hey, 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 I'm going to need another thousand bucks out of you. Like he's not going to shake you down and then see you tomorrow and shake you down again. He got it from Jesus. It covered the debt. He's never asking for it again. Somebody say amen. Right? How much quicker could we rise from our failures if we accepted the fact that God is faithful and just? I guess I, I guarantee if you accept it, you can get up tomorrow. Does that mean everything's going to be fixed in your life? No. You drove your car into a ditch. It's probably going to be a problem for a day or two. But just because you got a broken car doesn't mean that God's struggling with you. Separate those things. But he's faithful and just. So based upon that, what's he going to do? Forgive your sin and purify you or cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You're as good as new. Come on, man. I mean, do you know how many of us take, we take a week and a month and, and a half a year and a year to finally be okay with ourselves when what did, what did God do the minute you confessed your sins? He forgave you and he cleansed you. And, and, and bring that verse back up. He cleansed you from how much unrighteousness? What in the world are we doing? You either trust God or you don't. And if God cleansed you of unrighteousness, how much of it should you believe about yourself tomorrow? Zero! doesn't need to make you arrogant, man. It needs to make you humble. Like, oh my gosh, God is amazing. But you don't have to get up tomorrow and think, oh, I'm so full of unrighteousness. If you confess that sin, God forgave you of all unrighteousness. We're back to, we're back to square one. It's all good. Right? Then listen to this. If we claim we haven't sinned, right? Oh, leave that. Get rid of that verse. Right? He turns the entire thing off, right? Romans, read that, bring that Romans 3.23 up real quick. Everybody read it. For all, all have sinned, right? Don't act as if you have it. Don't come across like you have it. When you're in a conversation with somebody, don't come across like you can't relate to what they're going through. All have what? Sinned. Of all sinned. There's no way we're going to get through this without it. Now bring that verse 10 back up, David. 1 John 1.10. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Right? The reality is this. Light lives right, but light confesses wrong. Right? Listen, if you're doing this thing, you're going to do it wrong sometimes. And what you need to do is you need to make it right. And you know how you make it right? You confess your sins. That's it. Because did, what, what did God do for you when you confessed your sins? He forgave you. Everybody says, he forgave me. And then say, he cleansed me. It's over. It's over. Yes, you may have some, you may have some damage that you have to fix. You may have some consequences that you have to face. But when it comes to your relationship and fellowship with God, it's as good as ever. And honestly, I am convinced that you and I can handle any, any consequence in our life if we know and believe and accept 
that we're okay together with God. I believe that. The reason so many of us are so scared of our consequences is because we're concerned about our relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus said real quick here. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Everybody knows the answer, right? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, that's the first and greatest. The second, he says, is like it. Everybody read it with me. Neighbor as yourself. It's a commandment. Then he says this about that commandment. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? Loving God and loving each other, right? Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, no religious ceremony has any value. The only thing that counts is what? Faith expressing itself through love, right? Love. Love each other is as important as loving God. Amen? If you have faith this way in God, do you know how people know you have faith in God? Vertically, horizontally, they see you what? Say it. Loving each other. They don't look at you and go, oh, they went to church. They must love Jesus. The way they look at you and know that you love Jesus is because you love one another. Does that make sense to you? The reality is in the process of loving one another, we won't do it perfectly. Correct? And because of that, there's another work. There's another work that's happening in our lives. The work that God does. So listen. I, I want you to go to those last two scriptures and I want to leave you guys with these two scriptures. Psalm 32. David says this. Because I'm convinced, listen, I don't, you're going to have to come to terms with the nature of God. He's light. Ain't no darkness in him. Which means he ain't like me and he's not like you. He's never influenced by darkness, never tempted by darkness. Everything about him is light. And the reality is that nature that nature tells us if we're with him in relationship, we'll walk like he walked. So for some of you, being a, being a follower of Jesus means you've just got to do some things better. You've got to stop doing some of the things that darkness promotes. Listen, I know there's struggles. I'm not, I'm not here to pronounce judgment upon you. I'm here to say to you, I know that being a Christian in our flesh is a struggle. But for some of you, loving Jesus has become tiresome because you've been out of fellowship with weeks and months. And for some of you, you've been out of fellowship with him for years. You still love your church and you still love to serve, but you're growing tired of Jesus because you just never had a good day with him. The only way to have a good day with Jesus is to stop living in the dark, right? But having said that, you need a remedy because there are days that darkness wins. And he says this, light confesses wrong. And for some of you, the reason why this has gotten stuck in you is you won't agree with God that what you did was wrong. You just won't do it. I counsel people all the time in relationships and in marriages. And I watch them break up because one person or the other won't own their own sin. They think everything in a relationship is somebody else's fault. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And so I want to leave you with these two verses, if that's you. 
David said about his sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He goes on to say, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, right? The Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then it says this in Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Listen, this process is hard. It's not easy. And you're going to do it wrong. You need a remedy. And the remedy is this. You just need to own it. You need to confess it before God so that light can live right once again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time. And I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the messages that you're light. You're not like us. You don't have those moments of weakness. You don't have those insecurities. You don't have those traumas that we faced and received in childhood. You're without darkness at all. It allows you to be faithful. It allows you to be just. Our faith is in you, which means it's in your nature, which means we can live right. And we can also know that when we don't, you've given us a way to be right again. And that's to confess our sins. So I pray for our church online here. If there's anybody here, Father, that's out of fellowship with you. For either one of those reasons, God, would you bring them back into fellowship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.